but it is really a joy and a privilege to be with you. And I am so thrilled that you all are covering books like Deuteronomy. That is not common if you think about church in general, and then, of course, a study by women on the scriptures. It's really exceptional, but Deuteronomy is such a powerful book, and the section that we're in this morning, which is Deuteronomy 27 through 30, is particularly foundational, and it's particularly poignant, and it's particularly pivotal. So I am so honored to be able to cover this with you, and let's begin with a word of prayer so as to ask the Lord to bless this time and honor himself in it all. Our God and Father, we are so grateful to be together, to be around your word, and we ask that the lessons therein would be clear and that they would be convicting, and most of all, that they would elevate your grace, that they would elevate the consistency of your word, that they would elevate the might and the centrality and the exclusivity you have in our salvation, and that even from the beginning, even from the start of the Bible, these truths, these realities that we see so clearly manifest in the New Testament, they were already established in your plan, explicitly laid out. And all of that shows that your word is unified. But more than that, it shows your graciousness and your intense kindness to us that what we could never do, you do for us. And may that lesson be captured, not just for our intellectual understanding, but for the honor of your name and the worship of your name, in which we now pray. Amen. Like I said, I am covering this morning and have the opportunity to do so, Deuteronomy 27 through 30. Originally, it was going to be 27 through 29, and that was fine as well. However, that message would have left you on a cliffhanger. And so in the graciousness, the powers that be have permitted me to also go through chapter 30. Deuteronomy 30 is one of my favorite passages in the scriptures. It is so powerful. It is so important. It is the resolution of so many things. In fact, ironically, as we'll see, it's even the, the resolution of tension of Calvinism and Arminianism, if you want to go there. And and we will see that, and hopefully it'll be a little bit humorous to get there. But, but all that to say is these are very important chapters, and they need to be set up for properly, so we need some context going into this. Deuteronomy, I think you have learned by this point, is not just some random book with random rules and random laws. Actually, this is a very important book, and if there is one word to describe the book of Deuteronomy, it is this. It is Israel's constitution. It is Israel's constitution. Just like the Constitution of the United States supposedly defines our laws and defines our heritage and defines the very ethos and direction of the country in a real and more definitive and certain and authoritative way, the book of Deuteronomy defines as Israel's constitution not only Israel's values, not only Israel's beliefs, but the very worldview and direction of the entire nation. It sets, it sets 
the very trajectory of its history. You can think of it this way. In Deuteronomy 4, the word of God says that you shall neither add nor subtract from God's word. If you think about that idea of not adding or subtracting from God's word, that's the very notion of canon, is it not? It is the very notion that the Bible understood in and of itself that there was God's word which could not be altered and there were things outside of God's word which could not be put in. That is the very notion of canon. And so sometimes people wonder, is the book of Deuteronomy canonical? Well, actually, the book of Deuteronomy is what created canon. This is how formative it is. This is Israel's constitution. It is what establishes the entire framework of Israel and its history. And equal to that, and this is absolutely fascinating, you could think of Deuteronomy in two other ways. Two other ways that just tells you that this is not just some random book with some random laws. You could think of Deuteronomy as this, and it is. It's Moses' last words. Moses has been with the people. They haven't always been the easiest people to get along with. In fact, in Deuteronomy 9, Moses and 10, Moses says, you were stiff-necked from the day I knew you. Poor guy. He had to have a test run for 40 years in the wilderness by himself just so that he could stand Israel for 40 more years afterwards. So they haven't been easy, but they've been his people. And what do you say as your last words? You know this is your day that you're going to die. This is your last day on earth. What do you say to this people? You give them the book of Deuteronomy. Clearly, this book should not be boring. No one in their right mind wants to bore people on the last day that they have something to say to them. And along that line, here's another way to think about the book of Deuteronomy. It's actually a sermon. This is Moses preaching. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 5 or so, the text says that Moses endeavored. He undertook to explain, to make clear the law. This is the language of exposition. This is the language of making something that is maybe not bold in one's mind, bold. This is the job of bringing out all that something means and applying it into one's life with such clarity that now it is fixed in somebody's thoughts. That's a sermon. That's a sermon. And Deuteronomy is a series of Moses' sermons as he's preaching his heart out on his last day on earth. So sermons aren't supposed to be boring because the Word of God is not boring. And that's why we have Sermon Lab and Preaching Lab for seminarians to help them try to match their style and presentation to what it should be according to the Word of God. And so they, they can be boring there, but they shouldn't be boring anywhere else. We're trying to Grind it out of them. And Moses, as the leader of Israel, is anything but boring. And so this is the most insightful sermon given by somebody who knows he has one shot to make it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is a powerful, insightful book. And you say, okay, I understand. This is Israel's constitution. I understand these are Moses' final words. I understand this is his sermon And what is this sermon all about? What is his explanation? 
an explication of the law. What, what is it all about? What is the heart of his message and thereby the heart of Israel's law? Oftentimes we think that Israel's law is just a bunch of do's and don'ts. You are right. It does have do's and don'ts, a lot of them. However, is that really the heart of the matter? Is that really what the law is pointing to? Is that what the law is intending to teach? It reminds me of this instance when I told somebody, a dear sister in the Lord, I'm writing a commentary on Deuteronomy. And she looked at me, she goes, is that really a profitable use of time? (laughs) She says, Abner, Deuteronomy's boring. I mean, after all, what does the New Testament say? All you have to know, all you have to do is love the Lord with all your heart. That's what you need to write about. And I looked over, I said, funny you should mention that. Do you know what book that comes from? (laughs) She said, no, what book? Deuteronomy. She said, oh, well, that's a good idea then. Deuteronomy 6, Moses lays out, and look at the wording with me, just so that you understand how focused Moses is. Notice the opening words of Deuteronomy 6, verse 1, and he says, and this is the commandment. Not commandments, plural. This is the command. This is the commandment. One, one command. If you could sum up all the commandments of all the statutes and all the judgments that God has, there is one command. Moses knew, and he was preaching to Israel so that they would know, yes, there are do's and don'ts in the law, we understand that, but they are all configured around and all pointing to the singular command, and you know what that is. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God is one Yahweh, and so you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart. That is what you are supposed to do. That's what the entire law was pointing to. All of those do's and don'ts, yes, they exist. Was Israel accountable to them? We will learn more and see more and illustrate more. Yes, they were, but All of that, and this is what Moses is trying to emphasize to them in his message and presenting definitively in the book of Deuteronomy. It is about love for Yahweh. Everything in the law is about love for Yahweh. That's what it always has been. People think that the Old Testament was just about external conformity and external legalism. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Old Testament, starting with the book of Deuteronomy, Israel's constitution was all about love for Yahweh. And now do you see why our Lord says the most important command is love the Lord your God with all your heart. He's just saying what the Old Testament had already established, but Israel in their sinfulness had perverted and forgotten. And that's why they were disobedient. And we've emphasized over and over, and you can see it here, that you should love Yahweh with all your heart. That heart is what matters in this. Verse 6 of chapter 6. So these words which I'm commanding you this day should be upon your heart. Notice the repetition of heart there, yes? That's why you are to teach your children. Actually, the word for teach is to make sharp. 
You are to make your children sharp, to make them insightful, to make them geniuses about the Word of God. Because if you do that, you have to be a genius in the Word of God. And so as that exercise takes place, then the Word of God truly is on your heart. And so it's always been about the heart. God repeats the word heart over and over and over in the book of Deuteronomy. And of course, if you are to love God with all your heart, and if you are to put his word on your heart, it demands a right kind of heart. So in Deuteronomy chapter 10, God says to Israel, circumcise your heart. You have to walk in all my ways with all your heart. So circumcise your heart this day. Verse 16 of chapter 10. The only way you can really fulfill the law, really do what God truly demands, is to love him with all your heart. And what that requires is for you to have the right kind of heart. That is what God has impressed. That is the center of the law. That's Moses' sermon in nuance. And then you say, well, why then does Moses continued to explain from chapters 12 through 26 all these laws. And the answer is, is because he is helping you to understand what love for God in Israel's context looks like and how every single command of the Old Testament helps you to understand God and his plan better. Sometimes actions speak louder than words. We understand that. And so when Israel's living out the theology that God has given to them, then the nations can understand it. And then they can teach it to their children better because it's a hands-on demonstration of who God is. And so actually in chapters 12 through 26, these laws are not random. They are actually in order of the 10 commandments. They are all expositions and explanations and further applications of how to do each of the Ten Commandments. Let me give you an example. The first commandment we know is that there are no other gods but Yahweh. There is only one God. That is it. That's why chapter 12, the first chapter of these applications says you will worship in one place. Why? To show the world there is one God. Make it clear. God does not tolerate any kind of worship because he is only one. And he is the only one to be worshipped. And so your worship should show the exclusivity of God. That's an application of how you love the Lord with all your heart and specifically how you have no other gods before God because he is the only God. In chapter 13, it talks about punishing idolatry. Why? Because you do not make God into an idol. That's the application there. And then what you have in chapters 14 and 15, you have The notion that you shall not take God's name in vain. And this deals with how you eat and how you drink and the festivals of your life, both tragic, like a funeral, as well as wonderful, like the birth of a child. Why? Because God's name must be honored in all that we do, whether you eat or drink. We understand that. And then you have, remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy. God owns your time. God owns your time. If he can control your week, then he, can, he basically controls every time in your life. And that's why in Deuteronomy 15 and 16, it talks about Israel's yearly calendar. Because if he controls your week, he controls your month. And if he controls your month, 
He controls your year. And if he controls your years, he can even control 50 years if he wanted to. That's fine too. And it demonstrates all your time belongs to God. And it should be used to display him and his plan. And then we see other applications, whether that be, what does it mean then to honor your father and mother? It means to honor all authority, not just mom and dad. That's the starting point to teach them how to honor authority and ultimately God's authority. But that's why the rest of parts of Deuteronomy talk about the law of the king, the laws about the priests, the laws about the prophets. It reminds people, yes, you must honor the authorities over you, but it also is a law for those entities to remind them that they are authorities under God, that their authority is not unlimited. Rather, they must remain in the confines that God has given to them because there is only one authority and all knees bow to that authority. And so Deuteronomy is reminding people through all these different laws of what these commands mean and how they teach you about God, how they teach you about God. Even a command like do not give false witness, bear false witness, that command is expounded that you will not pervert justice against the widow, against the orphan, against the poor, against anyone. It reminds me of the question that the rich young ruler or the lawyer asked Jesus when Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What did he say? He said, who is my neighbor? Who, do, who does this command apply to? And Moses says, well, it applies when we talk about not twisting justice against other people, against anybody, anyone. Deuteronomy provides application to each of the laws in order. They're not random commands in Deuteronomy 12 through 26. They are designed to help you understand how to apply these commands, the particularity of them, but also the nature of God and his purposes. This is so insightful. And so Moses has said, the core of the law is about love, love from the heart, and you got to have the right heart to do so. And then he has shown, in loving God for with all your heart, you need to know and you need to desire to honor all of God's character in all the ways that he's prescribed because every act of your life, whether that be your weekly calendar or your worship to him or your offerings or the high points of your life or the low points of your life or your business ventures or whatever they may be, your parenting, all of that is for the glory of God. All of that is an expression of love for our Savior. It's not just the things we typically think about. Every breath of life should be about loving God. That's Moses' message. That's the standard that the law sets. And having expressed this very full theology and having expressed the very worldview that Israel should have, now Moses says, let me talk to you about your accountability. Let me talk to you about your accountability. And that is found in chapter 27 through 30. Chapters 27 through 30. What we are going to see in these chapters are blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And before we start to delve into chapter by chapter, some opening comments and observations should be made. One, this is not about legalism or merit. 
blessings and curses, oftentimes people read them and say, okay, if I'm going to apply this into my life, that means God will always give me good things if I do good. And if I'm bad, that always means that I must be punished for something. That's not true. Think about the book of Job. He didn't do anything wrong necessarily to warrant that discipline or that action against him. It wasn't that way. We know that. God made it abundantly clear. And we know that James reminds us that there are times when people go through trials of various kinds, but they're not meant and they don't happen because of a particular sin that we have done. Sometimes discipline does happen. We acknowledge that. Hebrews 12 reminds us of that. But sometimes it's not because of something you've done. Well, the Lord has a different purpose in it. And likewise, we're not the prosperity gospel where we believe that if you just do good things, God will reward you with good things. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes that doesn't. That's not the point of Deuteronomy 27 and 28 and following. Rather, this is pedagogical. This is pedagogical. And as parents, we understand that. We understand that. Think about your children. Sometimes to help them know this is right and this is wrong, we establish rewards and punishments. If you talk nice to your sister, you can get a toy. That's really generous. I've never said that in my life. But <laughs> usually it's, if you talk nice to your sister, you won't die. Either way, you're conveying a lesson. Yes. I had a friend, and when their ch children were younger, he said, if you get an A on your report card, you get a dollar. And then the next year, you get two per A. They're an ambitious family. And then the children went to college, and they said, if I get A's, does that mean I get $300? The parents like, I'm already paying for you to go to school. I, no, no. You see, it doesn't always work. <laughs> There's a pedagogical purpose. It's not necessarily the pattern for life. God is setting these rules and this paradigm for Israel to help teach them this is right, this is wrong. This is good, this is not good. You do have accountability. And that's the emphasis here. It's not about endorsing legalism or some kind of merit-based system. It is about instruction. And we understand that. We understand that. When we do this with our children, we're not trying to say that there's salvation by works or anything of that nature, not by any stretch of the imagination. We are simply trying to t instruct them and teach them. And that is what God is doing here to Israel and through Israel to the world. And in light of that then, in light of that, what is going to happen is that really at this point, Deuteronomy, because of this accountability and because of the way that God is going to instruct his people, what you're going to see in 27 through 30, it's going to shape history because this is going to dictate how God is going to interact with his people and to shepherd them and to instruct them. And these lessons aren't just abstract and theoretical. They're going to happen. They're going to happen. This is the agreement. This is their constitution. It's going to take place. And so we're going to learn lessons from this, but we're also going to see, yes, indeed, this really does shape what happens to the nation of Israel. And so with that in mind and all of that in mind, let's go chapter by chapter to, through 27 through 30. If 
In chapter 27, there might be two words that start with an A that help to encompass what this passage is all about. And the first word is the word authority. The word authority. That God's authority in his word is continued. You start to see in chapter 27, it talks about when they cross over the Jordan River, verse 2, that they are to write and inscribe upon a, a, a stone all the words of this law. And they're supposed to set that thing up on Mount Ebal. And you say, why is that the case? Because as they're coming into the land, as they're coming into the land, it's going to, these stones are a reminder what is happening right now. As you enter the land, you are under the word of God. You are under the covenant that he has made. You are under the revelation that he has given by the hand of Moses, commanding him to do these things. But then you also see verse 4. And it will happen. When you enter over the Jordan, you will, you will raise up these stones, which I am commanding you this day on Mount Ebal, and you will cover them with lime and such, and you will build there an altar. You say, why are you repeating this again? Well, Moses, did you, did you have a lapse of memory? Why are you saying these words again? But there's a reason, because it is a reminder. It's not just when you come in that the word of God is over you, it's now not just when you're entering in and transitioning in that you're under God's authority. It's also when you live in the land. It's not just in the conquest. It's going to be also in the next stage of life. It is not only when you're coming into the land. It's also in life beyond this time period that God's word will continue to have authority over you. What we must remember is that God's words, its authority never ceases, never ceases. It isn't just, oh, it's authoritative in this stage of my life, but then I can forget it in the next stage. Oh, it has application now because I'm in trouble, but now when times are good and fine, I don't need it anymore. Moses says, you erect these stones on this mountain and it serves as a permanent reminder for you, not only as you are entering into the land, but your time beyond that time. It's supposed to be there for all time, for all time, for you to remember. That's authority and the constant nature of authority. And upon doing so, and as Israel is remembering this continued authority, what that continued authority does is it makes you accountable. There is never not a time, pardon the double negative, when you are accountable. And so Israel puts, Moses puts, or is commanded to have people put these Israelites upon the mountain and they are to say these curses and the response as you can see in the text look at any verse after verse 15 it says and all God's people said amen how often do we say that in church all God's people said amen usually it's about something good in the Bible it's always about something bad it's kind of like where two or three are gathered you can discipline them so Let's not forget the original context here. And no, it's, it can be used for something good or bad, but that's what Israel's reminding. All God's people said, amen. This is, this is true. This is what we're accountable to. And notice what they are holding themselves accountable to. Verse 15, cursed is the man who makes any idol, any image. That's the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, yes? Then notice the next verse. Cursed is the one who curses his father or his mother. What is that? Honor your 
father and mother. You can make these connections. And think about this. Do you not recall that the Ten Commandments are broken down into two sections? One about your relationship with God. We call that vertical. And the other one, your relationship with others. We call that horizontal. Yes? And in this, what do we have? In the opening two commands, you are accountable to everything vertical and you are accountable to everything what? Horizontal. You are accountable to the whole law. You are accountable to the whole law. There is a reason why things are ordered the way they are. And Moses, even in verse 17 and such, gives more examples. Curses the one who removes the boundary. You say, why does that matter? Well, Israel's about to enter the land and they are about to own land. And that land is going to determine their livelihood. So if you kind of move your fence a little bit over one way or the other, it's going to determine somebody else's livelihood as well as your own. And the command to not murder, command number six, to not take life, is really the exhortation to preserve life. To preserve life. Israel was to be the most pro-life nation that there was. And especially in a culture where death was prized and life was disregarded. Israel was to care about life and not just life in its existence, but even life in its quality. So that's why you don't move the boundary marker because you care about your neighbor's life just like you care about your own. So Israel is accountable to keep everything that is vertical and everything that is horizontal. And within everything that is horizontal, they're accountable to commands like command number six. They're accountable to commands like command number nine. You will not put a stumbling block before the lame. You will not pervert, verse 19, justice. You will not bear false witness. You will not do anything that is unjust. And in verses 20 through 23, we see, cursed is the one who lies with his mother, the mother of his father, exposing her, wick, her, her nakedness and such. We, this is about the command for sexual purity, which is do not commit adultery. We recognize that. We understand that. God is reminding Israel. It is about every single command that I have commanded you, not just the big picture of commands one and five, but in the individual commands of command six and command nine and command seven. And then in verses 24 and 25, he concludes with command six and nine again, talking about Things like striking your neighbor. Well, if you strike them, you don't have a regard for life. And taking a bribe would be perverting justice once again. And so he, he commands all kinds of commands so that you understand you are totally under these Ten Commandments and all the applications that they stand for. And you say, hey, but what about this command? Could there be an exception to this rule? What does verse 26 say? Cursed is anyone who does not establish the words of this law to do them. And all the people of God said, Amen. They're accountable to it all. They're accountable to it all. And you say, well, okay, why does that matter? Why is that so important? Let me make sure we understand this. One, fundamentally, there's accountability. There, we remember this, that God, his word, and every time it is presented, and every time we read it, and every time we understand it, it cannot just go in one ear and out the other. You are accountable to it. You are accountable for that information. You are accountable to live it. And all God's people said amen to that. We cannot forget that. And furthermore, particularly for Israel's history and particularly for our worldview, this is very important. You say, why does Moses in chapter 27 say, curse is the one who does this, curse is the one who does this, curse is the man who does this. And then in verse 28, he gives a bunch more curses. And 
you know, if you're going to be efficient, just combine them in one. That's the American way. <laughs> but there's a reason that 27 and 28 are two different chapters. Because 27 is reminding you of what you're accountable to and what is the nature what is the nature of when you go wrong? This is important. Notice he doesn't say, cursed is the one when his friend does this. Or cursed is the one when the system does this to you. Or cursed is the one when something else happens in your place. Cursed is the one who does something that the Bible doesn't even talk about. Uh-uh. The issue of history, the issue of Israelite society the issue that God holds people accountable to is their personal sin. It is their personal sin. And Moses has to establish that first. If you don't know what sin is, if you don't know what goes wrong, there's no way you can ever think about a solution to make it right. And so Moses says, cursed is the man. Cursed is the person. Because you have to understand sin is the issue. In our society today, like every society, like starting with Adam, everyone tries to blame something else. They try to blame somebody else. They try to say, it's not my fault, it's, it's somebody else's fault. Or it's not even the issue of sin. It's just the issue of illness. Or there is some kind of other circumstance. It's not really what I did, and I didn't really sin against God. That's not the problem. It's some other problem. We try to deflect everything. What Moses is trying to establish, what Moses is establishing in Deuteronomy 27 is sin is always the issue. Sin is always the issue. Don't play blame. Don't deflect don't diminish, understand that sin is the issue. This is critical. This is critical. Having established that sin is the issue, now you're in chapter 28. And now we're going to see not just that sin is the issue, but the consequences of that sin. Not just that you are cursed, but the consequences of such a curse. And there's a lot here in chapter 28. It does talk about blessings, you get about four verses that talk about it. Great. Blessed are you in the city. That's every place. Blessed are you in your kneading bowl and stuff. That's your, your or blessed are, is the fruit of your womb. That's your estate. Blessed uh, is your kneading bowl and such. And that is the enjoyment of your, the fruit of your labors. Uh, I think you might resonate with that better than me. I don't really need anything. But I do eat what is needed, so that's good. Um, <clears throat> and, and blessed... Are, are you, uh, when you go out and when you come in, that's the blessing on your efforts. And so you have blessing on every place, blessing on your estate, all that you own, blessed on your enjoyment of all that the Lord can provide you, and blessing on all your efforts. Four blessings, all kind of alliterated there for you in verses three, four, five, and six. Four blessings, great. Then you start to read from, say, I don't know, verse 16 and such, all the way to, I don't know, verse 69. <laughs> and those are all the curses. I wrote in my notes, 
two times the amount of curses. No, it's more like 14 times the amount of curses than blessings. What does this tell you? What is the law going to expose? Not people's goodness, but people's sin. This is going in one direction. It's pretty obvious. There is a reason even in chapter 27 that Moses doesn't list any blessings whatsoever. Because sin is always the issue. And we are sinners. And God demands a right heart, but maybe we don't have one. In chapter 28, that's going to be exposed and it's going to show the nature of these curses. In verses 16, 17, 18, and 19, what you have is the negation of every blessing. You want to know what curse fundamentally is? It's reversal. It's reversal. Everything good God gives to you, he can take away. He can take away. Israel, will you see from this that you have sinned against him? Will you learn that sin is wrong? And on top of that, it's not just that there's reversal. The curses are also relentless. It's absolutely fascinating that in verses, say, 20 through, through really the end of the chapter, 20 through the end of the chapter, they're all arranged carefully. It's a poem about all the curses that will hit. And there's actually two different cycles of this. One is in 20 through 24, verses 20 through 24, where each thing is laid out where, yes, if you want to talk about efforts, Yahweh, verse 20, will send against you uh, consumption and fever and rebuke against all that you stretch your hand out. Everything you try to do, all your efforts, God is going to negate it. Verse 21, if you want to talk about your estate, if you want to talk about who you are and how you live in your household, well, when pestilence clings to you, you can never get better from being sick. You're just confined all the time. Well, then your estate's affected. And then verse 22, if you want to talk about enjoyment, enjoyment of the blessings, you won't be able to enjoy anything. If you have fever and you have inflammation and you have fiery heat, you're never going to have that. And if you have mildew and you have all these things that just eat away all your food, you're not going to be needing any dough or anything. You're not going to be enjoying anything. God will take it all away. And so God says, these things will happen, and they'll happen to you personally, and it'll happen even in every place, because heaven and earth, and where else can you be on this planet besides heaven or earth, it's going to be like dust to you. It's going to rain down dust. It's going to be dry and weary and exhausting and dehydrating. That's what's going to happen to you. And so God says, I'll take it all away, and I'll do it very specifically, and it will hurt. It will hurt. But then in 25 and following to the end of the chapter, we move to how God will be so relentless, not just because this will affect you personally as you're sick and you're going through pestilence and you're going through consumption and fever and all these kinds of things and you have to see the mildew in your own home and all this kind of stuff to things that are interpersonal, interpersonal. Verses 25 all the way to the end. All of a sudden now other people are involved to harm you from other nations. Just even look at verse 25. He'll give you over before your enemies so that you'll be defeated before them. Well, you won't really be successful then if your enemies are coming out to harm you. And in verse 27 and such and following, God, Yahweh will strike you with boils. Well, you might say that's per personal. Yes, it is. But Yahweh will also strike you with confusion and madness and disturbance of heart. Why? Because everything in your home will be turned upside down. And you start to see that in verse 29 and following. When all these raiders and all these invaders come into your home and do terrible things to your servants and to your animals and to you, you're not going to enjoy anything. 
you're not going to enjoy anything. You, there will be no estate. Your estate will be destroyed by other people. Verse 36, Yahweh will cause you and your king, whom you've established over you, to go to a nation whom you don't know. How are you ever going to enjoy your home and enjoy your land if you're deported? You can't. And so God says, first, he'll punish you personally, and then he'll punish you interpersonally. Why? Just so it's clear to you, his curse goes so deep. It's a bombardment of judgment affecting you on every level and affecting you in every dimension. And it all culminates with this. Verse 49. Yahweh will raise up against you a nation from afar, from the ends of the earth, and they'll take you away. Exile. It used to be that God said, I'll bless you in every place. Wherever you come, wherever you go, you'll be fine. Your field will be blessed. Your home will be blessed. And God says, I can turn that around so that everywhere will be a curse to you because I'll send you everywhere else. And that's exile. And the whole chapter ends with this, that you will try to sell yourself as a slave to the Egyptians. Isn't that ironic? Israel just got out of what? Slavery. And God says, if you disobey me, it'll be like you go back to the beginning. It'll be like we have to start all over. And that's what exile is. That's what exile is. And so we see that curse, it's a reversal. It's harsh. It's relentless. It's personal and interpersonal. It harms you in every way, every place, enjoyment, estate, efforts, all of that. And it even sends you into exile in the end. It's harsh. And here's the final R of these curses of chapter 28. They're real. They're real. If you read through these, and I invite you, if you haven't already, read through them, what you're going to see is that they really do happen. When people are afraid for their lives and they cannot, they have to hide even within their own fields and such, like in the period of the judges and the period of Gideon, well, you see verses 16 and 7, they happen during that time. And in verse 23, it talks about the famine. It talks about how the sky is like bronze and it won't rain. Do you remember the story of Elijah? It didn't what? Rain. Do you remember in verse 25, that Israel is going to flee before their enemies. Do you remember what happened at the battle of Ai? Israel fled before their enemies. Do you remember verse 42? It talks about how the, all the creeping things will possess the and take over your plants and everything that you try to do and engage in your household estate. The book of Joel is about a locust plague that does that very thing to Israel. And in verse 49, when it talks about exile, 2 Kings mentions their exile. And even in verse 53, it talks about when you are besieged, people will eat their own children. 2 Kings 6, that's exactly what happens. Everything in this comes true. Everything. And it's a reminder to us, this happened. When God says he will discipline, and when God says he will punish sin, that's not just talk. That's real. And that's how you need to read Israel's history. When, is, when things are mentioned later on in Kings or Chronicles, you don't just say, well, that was, that's too bad. Sorry about that, Israel. It's tough to be you. You need to realize the reason it's being recounted that way with those kinds of emphasis 
is so that you go back to the book of Deuteronomy and you realize this is God's judgment. This isn't just because of random chance. This isn't just because it just so happened to be this way. It's because God is sovereign and he's the king and he's the father of Israel and he's doing things against them to teach them. The problem is they never learned their lesson. They never learned their lesson. Accountability is real. Discipline is severe. And God's plan is real. You see, here's what's amazing. Where does Israel end up? In exile, just like the Bible said they would. This is the story. This is the way the world is going to work. This is the real history. And God had a purpose of getting Israel to this point. And you say, well, of course, it's to show his holiness. Amen. Of course, it's to show his justice. Amen. Of course, it's to show the enduring authority of Scripture. Amen. Of course, it's to show accountability. Amen. But it's to show one other thing. One other thing. Where does this all go back to? What was the heart of the law that Moses said? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And you needed a clean heart to do so. And so Moses says all of history is geared, pushing Israel into this one singular direction so that in the end, they would realize that everything has been about their sin, their personal sin, and that sin has been revolving around their lack of love for God. And their sin about their lack of love for God has been all revolving around their heart. That's the lesson they needed to learn, chapter 29. And now you get into a big mystery. Because we know what Israel should know. Israel knows what they should know. Namely, God cares about the heart. And so in chapter 10 of Deuteronomy, you need a circumcised heart. We know that. We understand. That's the prerequisite. You can't do anything right unless you have that. And so Moses, he's waxing eloquent by this point. It's chapter 29. And notice what it says. Notice what it says. I think verse 3 or 4 says this. Yahweh has not given you a heart to know or eyes to see or ears to hear until this day. Do you know how weighty these words are? Let's go through it again. What do you need to be blessed for Israel? What, what do you need to obey God, to satisfy him, to be pleasing to him? You need to love him. And that requires you to love him from the heart, which requires you to have the right kind of heart, a specifically circumcised heart. And what does God say here? I have not given you that heart. So go ahead and try. I'm out. We need a right heart to do this. Yes? Yes. The only way it's going to work is if we have that heart. Yes? Yes. And you haven't given us that heart. Yes. So how are we supposed to do that? Yes. <laughs> and God starts to show them, hey, I'm still going to hold you accountable. I've been very clear. It's not my problem, so to speak. You need to have this right heart. You need to circumcise your heart. You can't. But I'm still going to hold you accountable anyway. I presented everything, signs and wonders, great things in the wilderness. It's so clear. Verses 6, 7, 8. And so in verse 9, you are standing here today, every one of you, before Yahweh your God, every one of you, and you are accountable. 
you are accountable. That's a problem. That's a problem. Speaking of which, it's going to be an increased problem, not only for this generation, but every generation thereafter. Every generation thereafter. This is fascinating. God says, here's what I'm going to do. It'll be when you hear the words of this law, or lest somebody amongst you, a man or a woman, or any person of the family, who says, and I, and I, think, I think it says this in LSB, but it doesn't say it in some other translations, but it, which, who say in their heart. God has always been after the what? Heart. And Israel's like, time out, but you haven't given us the right heart. Doesn't matter. Did you say it in your heart? Yes, you did. Oh, that they were arrogant against God, that they could walk in their own ways, that they were a root of bitterness. If anyone says these things and boasts, verse 17, in his heart. All right. Well, that's your problem. Your problem has been with your heart. And God says it over and over again. It's with your heart. And if you do that, in verse 20, it talks about it very clearly. Then God will not be willing to forgive you. He will not be willing to offer you any forgiveness. Your heart is wrong. You will be condemned. And that only leads to one outcome. Verse 23, it'll be fire and brimstone against you. You'll be like the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. You say, wait, how does this work though? How, how does this, I mean, how is this possible? You made promises, God, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You made promises to Israel of land and seed and blessing. But the only way that's gonna work is if, we have the right heart, but we can't have the right heart. So how is this going to work? And that's where the famous phrase, the secret things belong to God. Yes? It really is about Calvinism. You know, people say, oh, how do you reconcile these two things together? A secret thing belongs to the Lord. And, and we think, oh, that's just the cop-out verse. That's so convenient that it's there. Actually, in the original intent of the author, it's dealing with the very tension. Moses is saying, Secret things belong to the Lord. It's going to happen. Now, technically, according to the original plan, that's where I should have just left you. But thankfully, uh, we have chapter 30. And that tells you everything you need to know. See, Moses doesn't leave them hanging for very long. It's only like one sentence. <clears throat> Verse 1. It'll happen when all these things come upon you, blessings and curses, and Notice here, this is so important. I think some translations say, when you bring these things to mind, actually the Hebrew says this, when you turn these things on your heart. And Israel's saying, okay, you're saying that we're going to have a repentant heart? But here's the problem. We don't have the right what? Heart. We need a what kind of heart? A circumcised heart. We don't have the right. What are you talking about? That you can turn these things on your heart and you return to Yahweh your God and you listen to all that he has said and you and, you and your sons will do so with all your heart. And Israel's screaming by this time at the top of their lungs, how can that be? We, have, we know we have to do things with all our heart, but we don't have the right heart. God didn't give us the right heart. We need to have a circumcised heart. And so verse 6, God says this, Yahweh, your God, will circumcise your heart. And at that point, you realize God always had a plan. 
and he will reconcile all things. Israel's right. You can't do this on your own. You can't do this at all. So who does it for you? Yahweh does. And what God did is he got his people to the point in history and will get his people to the point where they realize with such clarity, you can't do it. You are not good enough. There is nothing you can do to merit anything. They are at the end of themselves. And at that moment, then they realize who's the only one who could ever save them, Yahweh, by giving them the right heart. And that's what Deuteronomy 30 prophesies. Sometimes people think the only, it's only the New Testament that cared about the heart. The reason the New Testament cared about the heart is because God always cared about the heart, starting from the book of Deuteronomy. God has always cared about the heart. He's always been pointing out the heart. Do you not remember? I want a man, he says to Saul, a man after my own heart. I, David says, create in me a clean heart. I will give my people, I will change the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. It's always been about the heart. And the prophets of old have always been pushing God's people to realize you have to go to the heart because Moses had already revealed the game plan. And the game plan was, yes, Israel, you will have accountability. Yes, Israel, you will have authority. And it will shape your history. It will shape your history to force you into the position when finally you understand the issue is not you needed a better king because your political system was broken. The issue is not that you needed a better economic system. The issue is not that you needed to clean certain things, some minor things up in your lives and have a better kind of strategy or better political treaty with another nation. The issue is sin. And the issue, therefore, is your heart. And then God works. You see, that's why God's plan is consistent. You don't pit the Old Testament to the New Testament. The Old Testament drives the New Testament. Now do you start to see exactly what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3? He says, the law is not against, against the gospel. Instead, the law is the tutor unto the gospel. Because the law drives you to grace. It drives you there. It's been a part of the plan all along. And sometimes people say, oh, the law failed. There's a truth in that. It depends on what you're using it for. If you're using it to try to save yourself, of course the law's gonna fail. That's like using a little tyke's car to get to church. Of course it's gonna fail. But that's not the point of the car. You use a real car for that. The law was meant to push you to grace. And it did it. So actually, the law what? Succeeded. It did its exact job. And the law always pushes us there. And as we think about all these things, what we need to give thanks to the Lord for is that his word is consistent. He's always had one plan. And we need to remind ourselves that we should be under the authority of Scripture, and we are accountable to it, and we should understand and be convicted by our sin and realize God's discipline in that as well. But what we should praise God for the most is that he always knew we couldn't do it. And so he did it for us. And that is what Moses reminds us from Deuteronomy and the entire scripture carries it on. 
from there. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you for your word. It is a beautiful story. It's the true story. It's the one story of all, the singular plan that you have. And it has always been moving to the reality that you will do what we could never do. And so all praise goes to you. Thank you for circumcising our hearts when we could never do that. Thank you for intervening when we were desperate, in exile, dead in transgressions and sins, and you stepped in and did it all for us. That's your grace, and we are so grateful. In your name we pray. Amen.